the basis of our understanding of the idea of right and wrong today is the concept of values. But the great 20-volume Oxford English Dictionary, which lists the earliest documented use of English words, had no entry for the word values until the 1986 supplement, which located the earliest use of the English word values in a work of sociology published in 1918. Now that's really quite surprising. Shocking even. What does this mean? Values is the basis of our understanding of ethics today. Wikipedia informs us that ethics is the study of values. Universities and standard texts in philosophy concur. Is our ethical system based on an innovation? What is going on? Where has this notion of values come from? It was Friedrich Nietzsche who first used the term in 1888, scribbling away in obscurity for a vanity press and writing of the need for a revaluation of all values. Nietzsche was the first person to speak of Christian values, by which he meant values established by a Christian establishment who, he wrote, have a vital interest in making mankind sick, in confusing the values of good and bad in a manner that is dangerous to life. When he died in 1900, Nietzsche was unknown. Nobody noticed the loss, save for a few artists at the fringe of society. Nietzsche is not a thinker whose ideas most people in society would feel an affinity with today. But in one respect, in relation to one of the most central and pivotal sectors of our culture, Nietzsche is the figure to whom we are most indebted. From the halls of state, to the courts, to the universities, to the papers, conversation at downtown cafes and suburban dinner tables. Because we have taken over this Nietzschean word values and enshrined it in our decisions, our thinking, and our behavior. Now it would be a mistake to think that the idea of values was just something cooked up by Nietzsche. There are many reasons why, by 1888, a term like this was in fact needed to describe what had happened to ethics in the modern period. Ethics has to do with right and wrong. If you tell me that something I am about to do is wrong, what you mean is that I ought not to do it. Probably the most famous conclusion ever reached about the idea of ought comes from David Hume, 150 years before Nietzsche. One of Hume's most famous and lasting contributions to philosophy is the statement that an ought cannot be derived from an is. Statements that use is describe things report the way things are. Statements that use ought don't report the way things are, but state the way things should be. And no amount of description, Hume said, ever gets us from is to ought. Hume asked, where does the notion that we ought to do something come from if it doesn't come from the way things are, from facts? Hume said it comes from natural feelings, feelings within us that get expressed in human customs. Hume says feelings, not ideas. In saying that, what was he telling us? Some very powerful things. It can't be proved or demonstrated or deduced from any true statements that we ought to do something, which means that we can't know that we ought to do something. It isn't true that certain things ought to be done. There is nothing at all to know. 
We can only feel it. We just feel the pressure of natural feelings. These are modern conclusions. This is modern, not ancient thinking about right and wrong. And I bring Hume up in order to show you next something that happens when you understand right and wrong in this modern way. If I say to you, you ought to stop doing that, and you believe with Hume that I can't prove to you that you ought to stop, I'm just reporting on the pressure of feelings I feel, what my objection produces in you is tension. You look at me, and what are you likely to think about my ought? You think, he feels disapproval at what I am doing, but I feel great about it. He wants me to act the way he feels I should act. He thinks his feelings about what is right are more legitimate than mine. He is imposing his feelings on me. I don't feel them. What do they have to do with me? Now, Hume was a conservative Scot. Hume thought there was a right answer in these debates, the answer set by the largely Christian norms of 18th century Scottish society. Hume was absolutely not a relativist. But in Hume's day, we are well before the century of the republics and the revolutions that overturn the idea that the norms set by the ruling class can be trusted. Fast forward 150 years to Nietzsche. By now, lots of people think ethics is a contest of feelings, with other people imposing their norms of how to behave on them. By the 1880s, the new thinking about ethics that comes with the Enlightenment has led to a situation that cries out for a new terminology, which was duly supplied by Nietzsche. What are values? Values are subjective evaluations. I value this, you value that, and these valuations represent our different values. Of course, it's really quite obvious that people have always liked and disliked valued things, but it wasn't until the late 19th century that anyone thought they had values as the basis of those likes and dislikes. It was only then that people thought right and wrong were really judgments that rested on a foundation of values, subjective valuations. This stands on its head the way right and wrong were understood for thousands of years before the Enlightenment. But it is not the erasing of that tradition. For values to arise so that we today quote Nietzsche, talking about Christian values, the traditional understanding of ethics had first to be erased, dismissed, abandoned by Christians who forgot that tradition. What had they forgotten? Reason. That ethics is a matter of reason. Before the 18th century, the word ought had worked quite differently. Before it was understood to express feelings, it was understood to engage reasons for doing what it was said you should do. Reasons that are yours, not mine. When I say ought, it is not me foisting my reasons upon you, but me reminding you of something that I have good reason to think matters to you. Have you ever tried to start a fire in a fireplace? 
If you watch someone doing this, you might be inclined to say, you ought to stack that wood differently. What you mean is, you ought to stack that wood differently if you want that fire to keep burning. Then you can come back and sit down without having to get up again in five minutes and start the fire all over again. That use of ought involves a reason supplied by a purpose. You ought to stack that word differently so that you can keep the fire burning. Whereas if I say you ought to and you say why and I say because I feel you should, that is not a reason. If I know the purpose of your poking around with the wood, then I can talk to you about your own objectives, about what you are trying to do. I can give you a reason to act differently that means something to you. You can help people by saying you ought. And that is how ethics used to work. If what you and I are both trying to do because we are Christians is to follow Christ, and you are doing exactly what Christ himself never did and said we ought not to do, then you cannot, by doing that, attain your purpose, and you ought to stop. If we share an understanding of life and its purpose, I can give you a reason that is yours. I can help you by saying you ought. But when the ideals are no longer shared, my you ought sounds not like a help, but like a hindrance. You might like to know what the Canadian philosopher George Grant once said about modern ethics. The language of values, he said, is an obscuring language for morality used when the idea of purpose has been destroyed. And that is why it is so widespread in North America. When purpose has been rejected from ethics, it was rejected by Hume, when a commonly held purpose around which a community can unite has been rejected from ethics, then values language slips in, which is an obscuring language for morality. Practically anyone will tell you today, including Christians who advocate Christian values, that ethics is the study of values. But ethics, the study of right and wrong, is also understood to be the invention of Socrates, citizen of Athens in the 5th century BC. Was Socrates studying values? No. This is really very clear, because the Greeks had no word for values. Socrates was not studying values, he was investigating the good. In the ancient world, pagan, Jewish, and Christian, all the hard labor that we think today is done by values was done by terms that are always translated as good. In both Greek and Latin, it is the concept of good, agathon or kalon in Greek, bonum in Latin, that is doing all the heavy lifting. There is no word for values at all. So here's our question. What did it mean in the ancient world to call something good? And there's one thing to note about the answer you will get to that question, a very important thing, which is that good implies reasons. Because of what good means, when something was called good, you will see that it was always possible to answer the question, why is it good? 
When you ask the question today, why is it good? And the answer is, these are my values. And then you ask, all right, but why do you value this? What answer do you get? But in the ancient world, you do get an answer. You get a reason. The meaning of good always answers the question, why is it good? So what did it mean in the ancient world to call something good? Take water. Is the clear and fresh water in the jug of this water cellar from whom we buy every day good or bad? We buy it. We value it. But you hear what we're asking, a deeper question. Should we value it? We drink this water every day. Why? For the sake of what? We value it because it keeps us healthy. We drink it for the sake of health. Well, what does health give us? It's the same question of purpose. For what do we want health? We may think we want health for its own sake, but we don't really. Illness takes away our freedom, our freedom to enjoy life, to work, to be productive, to be kind, etc. We want that freedom for the sake of what? We want that freedom to live. Water is good because of what it makes possible, and it isn't survival. It's much more than that. It's life by some standard of living. Water is good for us in just the way it is for a tree, because with it the tree lives. And what is living? It is flourishing, the tree being fully what it is. We have returned to the idea of purpose mentioned a few minutes ago. Here's the formula for good. If an action or a thing serves the person performing that action or using that thing, serves them to fulfill their true purpose, then the action or thing is good. This was first laid out in detail by Aristotle in the Nicomachean Ethics written around 350 BC. Here's one of Aristotle's classic examples. Take a bridle, a bridle for a horse. The thing we're curious to know is, is this bridle good or bad? Is it a good bridle? Well, what can we do with this particular bridle? We can, in fact, control our horse. It works for that. But you might say that that, that we can do what we want with it, doesn't tell us if the bridle is good, tells us whether the bridle works. To find out if it is truly good, we have to ask why we want to control the horse. What does that accomplish? It allows us to drive our chariot in battle, Aristotle says. This is the same kind of answer we got before. So what? What does the ability to drive our chariot in battle accomplish? It allows us to defeat the Persians. But what does that accomplish? It restores peace. There. Peace is an end in itself, isn't it? Well, we're at the end of the line here only if we cannot ask, as we could of the bridle, what is it good for? And we can ask that. What is peace good for? What peace is good for is allowing us to live, but not just to live, not just to survive, to live as what we are. 
If the Persians take us, we'll have peace. We men will be dead and our wives and children will live as slaves, which is not what they are. Living as slaves is just not what we mean by peace. Peace is a state in which we can live as what we truly are, with the freedom that is proper to us. We are not cattle. So that is what peace is for. So the bridle is good because of what it makes possible, and really because of one thing only that it makes possible, the highest thing. The bridle is good because of what it is ultimately good for. It helps people be what they were meant to be. It is good because it is a link in a chain of facilitation that leads to people flourishing as people. But I want to make it very clear that this is not Greek thinking, but ancient thinking. If I want this thinking laid out in all its glory, minus the distinctly Greek theoretical analysis, I turn to the Bible. The righteous shall flourish like the palm tree. He shall grow like a cedar in Lebanon. This is not the gospel of prosperity. It does not say that flourishing comes to the righteous. It says righteousness is flourishing. What is a palm tree doing when it is flourishing? It's fulfilling its purpose, being the thing God made it to be, truly living. Things that are what they were made to be, are. What word am I going to say next? What word comes next? Things that are what they were made to be, are good. Things that are what they were made to be, are good. Everybody understands that good is things being what they are. Good is there in existence itself, created by God in things being what they are, and everybody at some level knows this. Why do people want to save species and forests and rivers? Because their existence, in and of itself, being just what they are, is good. It is good that the bison roams the prairie, that the river remains a river. Everybody understands this, from the Amazonian Indian to the postmodern tree hugger. And the best articulation of this key insight that everybody has into the meaning of goodness is Genesis chapter 1. In history, people began to think that good and bad were subjective only when they had ceased to see good and bad in connection with the conditions of life and death. The key difference between those who build ethics around values and those who conceive it in the ancient way is that the relativist does not understand and the traditionalist does, that right and wrong are related to life and death, to the saving of or the destruction of life. What is ethical choice all about? It's really about whether what we are about to do is to save life or to destroy it. The words I have just used, to save life or to destroy it, are the words of Jesus from Luke chapter 6 and Mark chapter 3. We all hear them there as Jesus providing an example to the small-minded Pharisees to convince them that plucking ears of grain to eat is good. Healing on the Sabbath is good. But those words are much more than that. 
Jesus is showing what the distinction good and bad is all about. Is it lawful on the Sabbath days to do good or to do evil, to save life or to destroy it? Forget the Sabbath question and look at the parallel. Good to save life, evil to destroy it. If you pay attention to all that Jesus says in the Gospels, you realize that saving life in Luke 6 is not a clever thing to mention to the Pharisees. Saving life is not an instance of good. Good is saving life. Saving life is the very meaning of good. What Jesus is saying here to some people offended by a perceived wrong is this. You people do not know what you're talking about because you do not understand what good and bad are. You do not understand the main thing about the good that you are so eager to defend, which is that good is saving life. For most people, death is the worst calamity. The ultimate wrong is to kill, to cause physical death, and the ultimate right is to prevent killing, to prevent dying. The next to worst thing is suffering, and to be ethical is to live in such a way as to prevent killing and dying and suffering. But that is not the way Jesus is talking. Saving life is not saving the body from physical death. It is preserving not your life, which you have, but your being, which you are. It is preserving the gift of being from a God who names himself, I am, being itself and makes you in his image. It is preserving what you are, protecting your essence from destruction. Preserving what you were created to be. That is the traditional biblical understanding of ethics, part of it. Biblical understanding of ethics is a rich and complex one. It's not reductionistic in the least. That understanding of ethics is there in scripture. It lasted for thousands of years. And of course, a modern person might well ask whether we are at all on the right track in talking about good as serving to fulfill our human purpose. Because what purpose do people have? Is there any one proper state for the billions of human beings to achieve? Aren't people different? Well, yes, Aristotle would have replied but you've just called them people. You've just said they are all one thing, people. And doesn't that creature have a purpose? Aristotle says this, for a flute player, a sculptor, and in general, for all things that have a function, the good is thought to reside in the function. So would it seem to be for man if he has a function. Have the carpenter then and the tanner certain functions or activities and has man none? Is he born without a function? Or as eye, hand, foot, and in general, each of the parts evidently has a function, may one lay it down that man similarly has a function apart from all these? What then can this be? The eye has a function set by its form. It is a sphere fit to move in all directions, with an aperture fitting it to receive light, and a lens fitting it to focus, and a retina fitting it to transfer a pattern of light to orderly electrical impulses. Each part is used in the job of the eye, and the eye, using its parts to do that job, 
is the I being an I, being what it is. Nothing has no form. Everything that is, is some way or another. This form and the powers it affords are the nature of things. We define every last thing in our vocabulary around these properties. If a thing has a form, it has something it is fit to do. So natural things and man-made things have a purpose toward which they are directed by their nature. So Aristotle's answer is that man, similarly, has a function. But people object today. They say a flute, an eye, purpose, yes, but not a person. Here's one Aristotle's scholar's answer to Aristotle. My whole body is not like a tool, still less my soul. I may misuse my hands in playing a golf shot, but I do not use or misuse my body to play golf with. That is not what it is for. It is not for anything. What is said here is that there is a difference between a tool, like a golf club, and the entire human body, which is not like a tool. What we are told is that a tool, like a golf club, and a game, like golf, these things have a purpose. And so there is a right way to use the golf club, which has a purpose, and a right way to play the game of golf, which has a goal. There is a good golf club and a bad one, a good golf swing and a bad one. And the only reason that this is so is that the purpose of the game of golf and the golf club were defined by human beings. Nietzsche said, we invented the concept purpose, which is absent from the world. But is that true? Don't all your colleagues accept that the eye has a purpose, including the colleagues who are certain that the eye has no designer? Doesn't everyone think that? Even people sure the eye is an evolutionary accident? Don't be misled by what I'm saying. I'm not switching to make a case for intelligent design. We're still talking about human purpose, about whether the ancient ethics is right in saying that human beings have a purpose, that you are for something. There is a way your body is meant to be used. Righteousness is this intended use of your body, your tongue, your feet, your hands, can the body have a purpose? The eye does. Never mind how the eye came to be, it did come to be, with a form which equips it to do something that we all understand is the purpose of the eye, in the sense of what the eye is fit to do. It isn't fit to do anything else. Well, not actually true, it is fit to be beautiful. But let's keep this as simple as we can. So doesn't the body show us that purpose is not assigned by human beings, that there is more purpose than humanly assigned purpose, and also that the purpose of a thing is indicated, just as Aristotle said, by the distinctive capacities of things, by the nature of things, by the fruit they produce. If a thing has a nature, then it has a purpose. Let's step back for a moment to see where we are. What we've been talking about is the meaning of good. Good means saving life, preserving what you are, not what you have. That is your purpose, to live through and not against the nature 
that God gave you. To live with and not against your limbs, your heart, your mind. Ancient thinkers were quite explicit that man has a purpose that is apparent in his nature. And that good things help you to live as what you are. And that good actions are living as what you are. But because modern thinkers deny that man has a purpose, that made it impossible for them to understand the meaning of the word good. So there had to be some other way to understand what we are doing in calling things good. And we arrive at values. Now, given all that, what is the conclusion that I'm leading you to? It might seem to you that what I'm now going to do is to prove that the modern view is wrong by proving that man has a purpose. I haven't done that yet. I just made this idea plausible and showed that there's more purpose in the world than the purposes human beings assign, as is clear from the body. But to prove that the whole body is made, like the eye, to do some particular thing, to function in a certain way, I would have to show what that is, just as we can do for the eye. Now, think about this. After stating what purpose man has, how do you think I could then prove that we were made for that purpose? Well, let me just cut to the chase and say, I don't think I can prove it. Here's why. I would be attempting to do for people what I did for the eye. Talk about the function of people, just as I spoke about the function of the eye. How do we show that the eye has a purpose? Don't we point to an eye that is seeing and point out our seeing is good? It is the goodness of the activity that is the clue to purpose. Eyes with cataracts are not another kind of eye with a different purpose. They are degenerate eyes that thwart the purpose of eyes. The only way to prove that an eye has a purpose is to point out the good of a functioning eye to other people who agree just how good seeing is. Well, I hope you can see what happens when you point to a human being fulfilling his or her purpose and draw people's attention to the good of that way of functioning. What happens? People deny that that way of functioning is good. They say that it is only because of your values, your subjective valuations, that you see this behavior as good. Because other people look at Christian life and don't think much of it. Nietzsche looked at our picture of man fulfilling his purpose and was repulsed. He called it holiness draining away all blood, all love. The image of the cross signals a conspiracy against health, beauty, bravery, against life itself. It's not going to be so easy to escape from the situation we're in today in a world of values, to pit an ancient understanding of ethics against the outlook of values is not going to do it. I want to conclude by returning to the words of George Grant, who called values talk an obscuring language for morality. It might strike you that what Grant is saying is that we need to shed the light of truth on that obscuring language and show what ethics really is. Bring back the idea of purpose. Bring back what ethics is really about. 
was about for over 2,000 years. When I first read Grant's words, that's what I thought. But to do that, you have to convince people that they have a specific purpose. What's your plan there? I've just said that the only practical way I can think of to do that is to direct people to the goodness of a flourishing thing, a palm tree growing up from a seed, sinking roots into the ground, growing tall, producing blossoms, bringing forth heavy clusters of fruit, or an eye working as it should. See how good are these things that they do, being what they are, fulfilling their purpose. But you can't show the purpose of man, the beauty of a flourishing human being, a person saving his life, preserving his soul, two eyes shutting out the light. Yes, the language of values is an obscuring language, but the obscuring, shrouding character Grant is talking about comes straight from the soul, and there it stops people from seeing the good in truly good things. You physicians probably know about those rare people who look at their perfectly functioning right leg as a foreign body, people who have had brain injuries, and think they would be happier living life as an amputee. Those people are not able to look at a certain good thing and see it as good. Their condition is an illness. In the idea of sin, which attaches to man alone, the Judeo-Christian tradition has said that we human beings are a peculiar lot, uniquely wound up to frustrate ourselves. We are all ill, sick in spirit. Sickness of spirit means that you cannot see. You cannot see all that you need to see. Our minds are darkened, Paul says. Augustine tells us that though the sun is shown to your spiritual eyes, your mind will not receive the light. The cataracts cleaving to those eyes are dimming down the light. He's saying that it is naive to think that this creature shuffling about in the gloom is able to look at that person who is fully and truly human is able to look at those who are most what God intends and see the good of that way to live, see that way of being as the fulfillment of a human life, just as a functioning eye is the fulfillment of the eye. Augustine said, Before the eyes of the soul are cleansed and healed, they are so repelled by the light of truth that they see nothing good in it, but on the contrary, a great deal of evil. Thus they deny it in the name of truth, and cursing the medicine offered to them, they run for refuge into their own darkness, which is the only state their diseased condition can endure. What it takes to see that we are, indeed, made for something, is a receptiveness to the good in the image of Christ, and in his most faithful followers, who are likewise images of Christ. If we are able to look at Christ and see the beauty of his life, then we can see what the entire body fits us to do. Seeing that beauty is something we are even now able to do only to degrees. And we did not give ourselves that capacity. You can't get that capacity just by looking harder, directing your gaze calmly and straightforwardly at the facts. You can't see the facts through the soul's eye until it is cleansed. Augustine said that very directly. 
The mind cannot see unless it is healthy. You cannot point to perfect life and expect its perfection to be seen. God cannot be shown to a stained and sick mind, Augustine said. Let me bring all this to a conclusion. We have indeed gone from a time in which we understood, or maybe it was just the most sophisticated thinkers who understood consciously, that the basis of ethics is right and wrong, and right and wrong means saving life, not destroying it. But the problem is not that the secular world doesn't get it when it should. How could it get this? The sick will not diagnose themselves, notice their cataracts, remove them. If we ask the question, who is failing? The sick are not failing, they're sick. If anyone is failing, it would have to be us. When I say that, I don't mean that we are failing to attack the problem with the right philosophical ammunition in the culture war, the ammunition provided by this more ancient understanding of ethics. I've tried just now to explain why others are not receptive to it. And they suffer from that disability, though the disability in question is one that tells them they are whole and complete. I don't mean that they are incomplete and we are complete. I mean that we are incomplete too, but we know it. The problem is that we fail to understand our own tradition, and we can make a mistake learning about our own tradition. We can hear what I've set out and think the message here is for the proponents of values, but it isn't. The message is for us. We need to do two things. We need to see what the metaphor for the problem of values versus right and wrong is. It's not war, culture war, it's care. We are not failing to attack the shift to values in ethics. We are failing to care for those who think that ethics means values. How? In just the way that you care for your patients. When you went into medicine, you knew the score. This is a world in which good-hearted people have trouble understanding what is going on inside them. And the solution to that problem, as you know, is to make help available to them when they need it. But by that you really mean when they seek it. You have never, I would guess, thought there should be medical SWAT teams that knock on people's doors to show them all the things they're doing to make themselves unwell. All the ways that they're getting in the way of the long and healthy life they want, though you know for certain that a long and healthy life is just what they want. This is a world in which good-hearted people have trouble understanding what is going wrong with their lives because of the darkness that has entered their hearts along with the light. And there's no way for us to talk that darkness out of them. But it seems there's often going to be some crisis in people's lives, just as with your patients, that turns them so that they open themselves to help. In these crises, the scales that blind people to their illness, to the recognition that they are ill, are knocked off. So we need to be ready with help, as you are in your practice. And that brings me to the second thing, which I will end with. To be ready with help, we need to learn to speak our own language. It's not the language of values. It's also not just the language of absolute right and wrong. It's the language of reasons and purpose and flourishing human nature. It's not our job to fix this problem. 
It is our job to be a presence in the world around the afflicted, which is all of us, so that the afflicted have someone to go to when the moment comes. The more we live like the people who believe in values, the less we're able to give reasons for calling something right or wrong, as Christians once could do, the less contrast there is in the picture between these two ways of living and thinking. It looks to the sick like we're all just wandering around in the dark, breaking down, picking ourselves up, and rushing off to some newly valued thing. If it looks to the sick like that, it won't seem that anyone has any wisdom about right and wrong. The wisdom about right and wrong helps you to live, to become a flourishing creature. That's what it means to be the church, the body of Christ. If you are not a picture of health, who would come to you to ask how you got that way? If you're not joyful, what depressed person needs you? If you're not generous, free with your time, attentive, not given to interrupting people, if you're not a zone of comfort, what person suffering the conditions of our world would seek you out? So be ready as part of the body of Christ, because when people encounter Christ, the scales begin to fall from their eyes, and then they can see what you would like them to know about right and wrong. Thank you.